I... Oh. Oh. Do you find another button, huh? <laughs> Good. I think we're on. Yeah. Thank you. So the obstacle phase, the hindrance phase. This is, um, I've always found this to be the more fascinating part of Buddhist psychology. As you may be aware, there's two terms for not knowing, the sort of existential condition of not knowing. And one of, uh, one of the terms is avidya, generally translated as not knowing or ignorance or um, nescience, uh, some people call it. And there's another term called moha, usually translated as delusion. And avidya refers to a type of not knowing that particularly concerns the causal nature of our experience. So ignorance, not knowing, particularly screens out the conditional dynamic that leads to the experiential process. So it either um, denies such a conditional process, which the Buddha has had uh, some of his most harshest criticism of, this particular attitude, or it identifies with that cause um, either a god or an all-powerful self or uh, demonic forces out there, uh, yeah. But then it's called uh, a variety of things, yeah. Depending on your vantage point, it's called uh, narcissistic grandiosity or paranoid delusion or uh, animist uh, magic notions or uh, a childlike belief in the objectivity of science or you know depending. <laughs> depending on your particular brand of that type of um, ignorance, um, this can look quite different. But what is intrinsic to such a position is the denial of conditionality. The second type of um, the problem, of naming the problem, moha, refers more to the psychological dynamic of how ignorance works. In some ways, this is more approachable. Uh, the teachings on avidya, I've always found them a little disappointing. You know, you can't imagine the beginning of avidya, and yet avidya has conditions as well. Um, avidya is the, you know, the prime culprit, sort of in the, in Buddhist demonology, you know, the, um, the prime culprit is this avicca thing. And uh, where does it come from? How does it work? Which parts are affected? This is not really clear with avidya. So with moha, it becomes a lot more clear. Moha tells us a little more 
where it hits, what the effective is when it has hit. How do I notice that I'm infected? Um, what does it feel like when I'm convinced that my confusion is actually real or so? As one of the correspondents in one of the fora uh, has a signature, uh, often wrong, never in doubt. Yeah. <laughs> so how does it actually feel when I'm afflicted by this particular type of uh, delusion? So one of the things that is afflicted in there, or that seems to be afflicted, is our capacity to relationship, our capacity in relating, relating to self, relating to others, relating to process, relating to world, relating to unfolding stuff. And if you look a step further, what it is that impairs or obstructs my relationship, then there's a very fairly small number of qualities that come into uh, focus. One of them is pain. Under the influence of pain, I am deeply impaired in my relationship to world, to inner process and outer process, to people. My relationship to basically my context is dramatically impaired by pain. Another of those qualities is anger. Under the influence of anger, dramatic things happen to me, perceptually. That's the worst, because uh, perceptually then I actually am prone to believe. You know, if things hit me perceptually, then it looks like when they appear on my screen, they seem to be kind of in a sort of self-evident and unquestionable way to be the way they appear on my screen. So to be dislodged from a perceptual reality, you need to have uh, a lot of trust in other people who tell you it is not that way. Or you need to be really, really exhausted to uphold, that it's more painful to uphold a false perception than to acknowledge a feared reality. Um, Perceptual reality justifies my emotional reaction. Yeah. If I feel that you are a nasty person, then I suddenly feel justified in my anger, in my indignation, in my aggressiveness, in my standoffishness, in my judgmentalness. All this suddenly isn't a problem anymore, since you are as such a baddie that this is perfectly legit to be that way. Yeah. So. Anger is really doing a big number on us. And even if the baddie kind of, you know, moves off, tail between the legs, uh, decorously beaten, and I am left behind with a strange sense, not of triumph, but of isolation, of having somehow started to resemble that which I so loathe and I so abhor by my engagement with that energy of anger that I become one of the baddies. You know, that's the sad thing about anger, that even if you triumphantly win your battle, take out the demon, um, you know, vanquish the 
the forces, the dark forces, suddenly you find out that actually you've you've joined them in some strange way. You know? You've joined these dark forces by becoming in your heroic fight against them. You've started to resemble them. So anger really is something that deeply impairs our capacity to relate. It impairs our capacity to receive trust from others. Um, it makes us feel isolated, lonely, and shamed in some ways. We feel we have in some way lost it. Another thing that impairs our relationship or our capacity to relate is pleasure-seeking. My studious focus on how to maximize my pleasure and equally studious disregard of what you wish or what will be good for a few other people. So that, that may impair my relationship make me heedless, selfish, narrow-minded, blind. And another one is the ignorance of connection. If I am ignorant of connection. So those are a number of things that really powerfully impair my capacity to relate, to connect, to get in touch with as the basis for learning, as the basis for understanding, as the basis for reconciliation, as the basis for something that transforms my heart. Yeah? So we have pain, anger, pleasure-seeking, ignorance of connection. Um, pain is not just bodily, it's also mental. So uh, the, uh, the one I forgot is, in, is fear. Yeah? This is another big robber of freedom and capacity to relate. If, if you map this with what I said this morning, you know, ways of getting lost, and you can easily map them, isn't it? Losing the space. That can happen because I, I've been hurt, I've been slighted, I feel intense, I feel hot, I feel obsessed, I feel cornered, I feel Helpless. That's when the space is gone. That's what I feel like. Um, I can lose the other through many types of emotion. Fear is one. If I am really afraid, suddenly you disappear. Your needs, your well-being, your existence, your care, all this disappears. Just my fear and me. This is real. Anger, the same. It's good to study one's own impaired relationship. Where do I cut off? Where do I fall back onto very simple patterns? Demonizing others, dissociating, vitalizing myself with anger, going into some unfounded and blinked optimism. <laughs> yeah. 
Some people just become, whenever the problem becomes very obvious, they, they, they kind of start to look brightly into the future, you know, and think, well, this is just the sort of thing, you know, this is the miasm, this is the coming out of the bad stuff, this is the last sign of the bad stuff parting. Yeah. The German poet Brecht has a, has a beautiful little poem <coughs> where he describes that the besieged folk in the city of Troy uh, when things were already hopeless, when the horse was already in town, started to hold hope and started to think brightly about the future. You know, and the kind of uh, you have something in in your language. You say, you know, it's it's kind of is it hope dies last or is it something like that? It's the hope springs eternal. Um, so. I wanted to look at you at forms of ignorance. What's behind this ignorance? This word is too too big. We need to chunk this down. We need to parse this a little bit into more palpable uh, dimensions. So let's look at some dimensions. I wanted to look at five different dimensions of ignorance. Because, you know, who frankly feels ignorant, you know? It, you know, when you say, are you ignorant? And people say, oh, no, no, no. I'm yeah, I'm pretty knowledgeable. I've got plenty of experience. Ignorance, this happens to clueless people. I'm not a clueless person. You know, I have got some savvy, I've got some problems in building size, but you know, I'm definitely not ignorant. You know. I know about my problems. But um, that somehow doesn't seem to do justice to the magnitude of, of this notion. You know, remember, it is the culprit in Buddhist demonology. Um, it's worse than greed and hatred. The saying is very clear, and sometimes you see that depicted in the Tibetan. Um, the image that we know from the Tibetan tradition of the Bhava Chakra, the wheel of becoming, sometimes called slightly euphemistically the wheel of life, you know, which makes it sound nice. <laughs> But actually, it's not the wheel of life. The guy who shows you the mirror is Yama, you know, the lord of the death. And he says, this is it. This is your life. Look at this. This is the mirror. I'm not showing you a nice little toy, a wheel with little picturesque worlds. This is a mirror showing you this is your life. Yeah. And... Um, by the way, this image is a lot older than, you know, the Tibetan uh, tankas we have are not very old. They're barely two, three hundred years old. But we do know <coughs> that this image was a lot older. Um, we have texts that tell us of the appearance in, in some traditions in uh, Tibet, I think in the 12th century also. And then we have actually a little bit of a fresco left in Ajanta, just, just I think a corner I haven't actually seen it. I've seen pictures of it. It's I, it's been identified as part of the Bhava Chakra, and it's sizable enough to be very, very clear beyond any doubt that this was a fresco uh, dating back to the fifth century. So we're a thousand years earlier, and then <clears throat> we have texts in the Avadanas, which are a collection of um, past life stories in the Buddhist Sanskrit tradition. Uh, in two of those texts, we have textual references to such an image being drawn into the sand by the Buddha. Yeah? 
And in between, we have in the Vinaya literature, in the monastic discipline literature of the Mulasarvastavadin tradition, which is kind of North Indian Pakistan region, um, we have um, stipulations for monasteries that in every monastery such a painting should be at the entry and a monk should stay there the whole time and explain to visitors. Yeah? So it was felt to be clearly very significant. And although our physical copies of that image are late and uh, Tibetan tradition only, we do know at least um, that by the time the Divyavadana was collated, which is probably the first or second century uh, AD, that there was a textual reference to at least sand drawings of this. 200 years later, when the Mulasavastavada Vinaya came into being, we know that this image was so popular and deemed to be so important that it was becoming the topic of a monastic stipulation yeah. and uh, deemed important at the entry of the monastery, not in the inner sanctums, you know, for the old lofty meditators. No, no, it was to be right there at the door to be explained to visitors. So we know this is an old image. That image has a history. And in that image, in some depictions, you have in the hub the three animals that form the iconographic um, analogy to the root evils, namely greed, hatred and delusion. And in some of the depictions you see the pig, which poor intelligent animal has to stand for delusion. Uh, the pig opens its mouth and out of its mouth come the snake, which stands for hatred, and uh, the rooster, which stands for desire. So it is out of the mouth of the pig that desire and hatred are born. It is only, let's translate that into psycholo psychology, only under the influence of ignorance are we convinced that by following our desire and by following our hatred, we have a chance of becoming happy. Yeah, that's the simple message there. So the key the structurally the key issue is not greed and desire bad as they may be uh, it is the not understanding the pattern of desire and not understanding the pattern of hatred not understanding our fundamental connectedness with other beings and a social world in, of which we are part and which helps to form us and of which also depends some of our happiness, um, not understanding our connectedness to this world. So ignorance as a structural problem manifests on a variety of levels. The first level of ignorance is sheer lack of energy. You know, it's lack of sensitivity. The most plain and energetically lowest, simplest, most fundamental level of ignorance is simple being thick-skinned, being not sensitive, not picking up, not receiving the signal. Yeah. I think that's important to know. You know. That's not picking things up, not letting things in, not 
sense being sensitized to events is a form of ignorance. Yeah, I think that somehow suddenly makes it more real. Yeah, makes it more recognizable. It becomes less sort of a funny word with this in psycho in Buddhist psychology. It becomes more, mm, yeah. So being thick-skinned or being numbed or being you know, just not sensitive enough to pick something up is a form of ignorance. The second form of ignorance is an interesting form. It's it's about not acknowledging what we already know. Yeah. It the second form of ignorance is about denial. It's about pretending not to know what we actually do have access to in terms of knowledge, in terms of information, in terms of sensitivity. Yeah. So there is a lot, there is a lot in there. There's not wanting to add up what we actually in individual categories already know. Uh, we get a lot of mileage out of this. Yeah. You meet people still, you know, who think environmental issues are not really a problem. You know, human beings are smart. We've lived so long on that planet. We're going to fix this somehow. Yeah. It is not definitely proven that, you know, our carbon output really has something to do with our with global warming. There's enough irregularities in the curve of global warming that we can still argue in some way that, you know, there is no definitive proof that really the development of carbon output in its linearity equals a, e a linear development of say global warming or so. There's still people who argue that way. You know, and just say, although the facts are overwhelming, um, people who do not want to add up. Yeah. There's the conspiracy, the conspiracy lot, you know, who kind of now have big enough computers so that you can correlate somewhere the fluctuation in the size of the spots on the sun with the Canadian wheat harvest, you know. And if you, if you kind of make your machines long enough, and you know. Basically, you will find a pattern who somehow can be correlated to, you know, the length of women's skirts in the 20th century or something like that, yeah? You, you can do this now with just big machines. That's the conspiracy lot. But then there's the other lot who is kind of blue-eyed and optimistic and thinks human beings have always found a solution. You know, we're so resourceful. The tide is rising, you know, the glaciers are melting and... I kind of start to take faith in the human ingenuity. Yeah. Now that is a type of, strikes me as a type of ignorance, a type of denial. You know, I do not add up the bits and pieces I already know because it's, it's discomforting to add this up. Yeah. It would take me to task. It would demand from me some form of action. It would make me concerned about my children or my grandchildren or the peoples who who I love, their children, their grandchildren, you know, it would make me concerned about my own old age, you know, <laughs> if we continued at, at that rate. I'm sure you will have met people who do this. I'm sure you will have met that maybe even in yourself, sort of this not acknowledging what stands already clearly on the horizon. That's really a profound sort of ignorance. It's an ignorance which can handle facts in some way 
and then it goes into a big sort of pool of facts and somehow they will never add it up yeah they never processed they never they never mapped yeah and you just go into some kind of instinctual gut trust you know somebody will fix it or we'll find another planet if this one is messed up or um A third type of ignorance has to do with, with simply not having enough information, with not knowing. No. We do not have enough studies of things. Yeah. So that part of that ignorance is not collecting the information we actually have access to. It's not the actively screening it out, yeah, like it is on the second one, where we do know, we, we have the signs, the sensations are there, the prick, uh, the, the, uh, the remor, uh, the, uh, the, um, our conscience is speaking, and yet somehow we don't want to see, because it would demand from us alteration of our behavior, a responsibility, an acknowledgement, and this would all be so painful, or it would be so threatening, or it would be so uncomfortable. Or we would not be able to get away with some of the things we like doing, or it would mean we had to, to do some things we really fear or loathe doing. Now, the third layer, it's just we haven't studied enough. I believe we haven't studied enough Buddhism, for example. I'm of the firm conviction that what we have carried across of Buddhist teachings is the smaller part of what there is. Yeah. And we think we are somehow, we know it, we have it. The truth is we, we don't even have translation of all that is there. Yeah. Let alone do we know about the oral traditions, which have, for all traditions, Oral tradition has <clears throat> been the context in which a textual tradition was embedded. Yeah? Now much about Buddhism is not just about what these texts talk about, but it's about the oral tradition that has been the <clears throat> interpreting these texts, uh, has been embedding these texts. Yeah. Many of these texts are shorthand for a complicated process. Many of these texts are... They're blueprints for a particular process, but they don't fill in all the details for all the different people who do this. Yeah? Because the Buddha, like many of his, not just contemporaries, like the whole Indian tradition, was deeply aware that much learning happens relationally. It happens in a specific context. And you can only list so many specificities in a blueprint. You have to leave some of that to a teacher, a relationship, people who find out from each other what they do and what helps. And not all of this has made it into the texts. Yeah. Like I described a few days ago, you know, the, the most common pattern how meditation is described. The the famous uh, to target to walk, you know, the becoming a becoming awakened and where it 
it seems to say some with some detail how the place looks where you meditate and it doesn't use that degree of granularity where it says how you meditate yeah. and it seems obvious that any teacher will anybody who has taught anybody else something will know that people come to this with very differing um, conditions gifts hang-ups virtues energies and if you're a teacher, you need to take this into account, you know. So some people you you bark at, and some people you kind of tease, and some people you encourage, and some people you just give a pat on the back. Some people you give a lot of detail, and some people you say, this is great, just stay at it, and you know, you do this. And then you go out and you say something in general, and then you take this guy to the side and say, whenever I say this out there, you know, you do that. Yeah. So this is what teachers do. Every teacher has done that, you know, because they come in all sizes, the people who we want. And if you care to convey that, you need to look, where does it land? What does this person need? So not all methods, not all styles, not all exercises are for all people under all circumstances. And, you know, if you're realistic, then you will have to leave some of that fine-tuning or the fine mapping or the pacing of this process, you will need to leave that to people who actually live with each other, who help each other, who know each other. So we know very little about this, to be honest. You know, for some traditions we know a little more, you know, some this still living oral traditions which can help. You know, this is an incredible gift and you find out. I've lived a number of years in Thailand and was part of a when I trained in England as a young monk I thought you know this is forest monasticism this is how it's done you know there were four monasteries in England and we basically we had it sussed you know this is this was forest monasticism we were doing a genuine authentic oral tradition thing right there in the west you know we were Westerners. we did it there but we felt you know, this this is forest tradition. Then I, I went to Thailand after I had been already a number of years as a monk and I found myself suddenly in a context that also called itself forest tradition and that did things rather differently, you know. Not just was there one big thing different from what I knew. There were, you know, dozens of different things there. There wasn't just one thing different from what I knew. You know, there were just... A lot of very different way people practiced in 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 what they also called forest tradition. So my little forest tradition, English uh, breed forest tradition uh, of Ajahn Chah's lot, suddenly um, I found you know I visited about thirty of Ajahn Chah's old monasteries and uh, there were teachers in there and they all you know they lived quite differently from each other, not just from the one in England, and I realized. Oh, this forest tradition thing is a little more complicated than I thought. You know, I had one model and now I have 30. Yeah? And then you go beyond Ajahn Chah's lot and you look at the Dhammayutika scene, which is another brand of forest tradition. In fact, the larger brand, uh, <clears throat> which was a great inspiration for Ajahn Chah's practical teaching, but then he deviated in some very crucial ways from it. He says, oh, this is how they do it, you know. They don't do group sittings, they don't do chanting, they, you know, they don't meet, actually, you know. There's no schedule in their monasteries. Uh, the walking meditation path are tri th thrice as long, or, you know. And you, 
you realize in one monastery they eat fast as hell and you can't basically, you have to eat in 15 minutes or less what sustains your poor body for 24 hours. In the next monasteries, you can eat as long as you want, you know, before mid, if you finish before midday, but no leftovers, no grain of rice goes in the bin, yeah? So you've just learned how to eat fast, you know, and if you eat fast and you generally don't do a lot of detail in how you do with your leftovers, they go to the next monastery just across the valley and there they are really finicky about throwing things away and you you have to attune to this and you realize, oh, okay, this is also forest tradition. It's really more complicated than I thought. You know? And you begin to discern, <coughs> wow, yeah, there's more than one way of doing this proper, more than one way to, to practice, you know, to learn the tools. Um, so, that third type of ignorance is about knowing detail. It's about discernment. It's about investigation. It's about finding out differences. It's about um, you know, getting the nitty-gritty sorted. The next, the next layer of ignorance is we have the details, we have the information, the data are here. But we somehow don't know how to correlate it. Yeah. We have piles of data, but we haven't an organic, usable understanding. How do I arrive from a pile of data into a workable, organic body of knowledge that I can apply? Yeah, this is a skill. We all suffer from information flooding. I don't know how your lives are. Mine is such a life. I, I have tons of information. And uh, I often, I need techniques to stave information off and to screen information. I've, like many people, I've learned internet reading. I, you know, when I am with people who have not uh, lived with the internet since 1995, then um, I notice they read differently. You know, we look at the same page and I'm, you know, I have skimmed through and fished out the three pieces of information I wanted to have, and they're still reading, yeah, because they're doing a different type of reading, yeah. And I've I've learned to I've learned a number of more reading skills, you know, diagonal reading and uh, and and just kind of keyword reading and you know, sort of uh, split second glances. Not even proper reading, just kind of gauging from a distance. Is this likely to hold the information that makes it worthy that I actually focus in and do, do skim? Or is this just, you know, have I fallen for the ad here? Is this the ad link rather than the piece of my research? So we've, we probably all have learned to <coughs> aggregate information, I think is the term, <laughs> yeah, in meaningful ways. And... Uh, trying to condense stuff. So uh, that fourth type of ignorance is the incapacity to distill from the information that we have access to, stuff that is meaningful, pragmatically applicable and relevant to our situation. Yeah. That is a skill to learn to do that. There are people who are great collectors and hoarders and never condense the stuff. They somehow, they can't structure this. You know? 
It's a very simple principle. If you have ideas and good ideas, and they are not functionally collected, you just make a pile, yeah, ideas. And if somebody gives you a new piece of information, it, you put it on the pile, it just means the pile gets bigger. It doesn't mean it's correlated. It doesn't mean it's organic. It doesn't mean if you pull here, nothing happens over there. Yeah? So what you want with this information, with this data, is to arrive at something that is knitted together in some way that if you move one part, that the rest moves along. Yeah? If you add another piece of information, that this in some way transforms the body you already have. That's what good science is doing. So sometimes we lack this quality. Yeah? So that's a type of ignorance. Not being able to clear priorities, establish correlations, not being able to map, not being able to put together. Yeah? It's all there and yet I'm lost with it. Yeah? It's just a pile of stuff rather than an emerging body of knowledge that gradually starts to help me orient. Um, and finally, there's another pattern of ignorance which is I have understood. I have discerned patterns, but I lack the resilience or the patience or the capacity to live by that. Yeah? I do not know how to live what I actually know. I suspect that's something many of us feel as a as a painful cleft somewhere in between what we know and what we live in between understanding and realization in being um, you know um, a discernment and a performative capacity to actually live by that discernment um, I would like you to ponder these differing dimensions of the notion of ignorance. Um, it's necessary that we break this down and ask how would this look in my life? Do you find these five domains? A domain in where you're just lacking sensitivity. Where things just don't taste. If you're full of monosodium glutamate and uh, fisherman's friend and tons of uh, high high powered tastes then you know green tea is just a boring experience yeah once you've come off that stuff green tea starts to get a little more interesting yeah or miso soups or so um, so sometimes it's just numbness the numbness has to do with disinterest or it has to do with the volume of intensity in which we bombard our system The second dimension is about when you actually study how an insight in your life has come together, the, the lengthy duration, the gestation phase of an insight, or something that gradually dawns on you, or you know, somebody turns out to be a disappointment, and you realize how you have very early on noticed some of the telltale signs of what was going to come and yet you didn't want to see that yeah you've denied you've explained away you've you've um, you know you've 
turned it into a charming little idiosyncrasy, you know, rather than an egregious lack of moral accountability or so. You know, we do all kinds of things. Um, if the big teacher parks his shoes sloppily, then, you know, this is a sort of humane kind of trait he has, you know. If shoddy little lovis parks his shoes badly in front of the meditation hall, you know, he's just a sloppy little novice, you know. But, so we, we kind of read the same things in slightly different ways. We attribute, uh, we have not quite the same scale. We measure things in not quite the same way. I've always been shocked by the amount of willingness of my mind to deny things that I later find out have actually given me very early clues if this was the case. And I I was shocked in how, with what skill and with what consistency I have tried to explain away things that would have had, have given me very early on indication that something is off or something goes wrong. And with what skill I've tried to not take notice of this or make this look insignificant or somehow just, you know, an erratic little pattern which is of no significance. You must have known such things, you know, people who kind of uh, turn out to be compulsive liars or so, or people who, whom you find out things that, that were shameful or so, and you, you, you've picked up something and then you did not want to see that, you did not want to know that, you did not want it to be that way. Um, I've several times found my mind using incredible resourcefulness to not having to acknowledge something that was counter to my wishes or counted to my invested beliefs or counted to my uh, cherished idolization yeah and it's been very painful to not just come to finally realize <laughs> this is not the case but come to acknowledge the degree of my collusion with this you know how i've played into this how i've uh, you know cooked the books accordingly so that it it adds up at the end what doesn't add up in fact and yeah so my my personal collusion and sometimes communal collusions with dynamics you know this is a this is a poignant it's a poignant insight recognizing your own mind's capacity to distort what's happening so that it suits your cherished perceptions yeah? your cherished models of the world suits your what you have invested in as beliefs, as values, as perceptions, as roles. Number three, lack of information. It's good to know something about your sleepiness. It's good to know something about defense mechanisms. It's good to know something about Buddhist teaching. There are quite a lot of things that can, with much gain, learn. It's not enough to just sit there, be well-intended and mindful. I'm pretty clear. So I like things simple, but if they're 
if if people tell them to make them simpler than they are, usually there's a very high price tag to that. So I do think um, learning is crucial. The Buddha was quite adamant how important learning is. I don't know how it is for you. I came to Buddhism sort of through uh, intellectual fatigue, maybe. And I found myself in a in a tradition of Buddhist practice that almost prides itself of being anti-intellectual. You know? uh, ironically, it is staffed by many intellectuals, which makes it, you know, slightly twisted. Um, and uh, thankfully, some of them have broken through and actually affirmed their minds as something useful. But, you know, there is a an unfortunate pattern in Thai Buddhism that basically says the contemplators are uh, contemptuous of the, uh, the the learned monks because they say they're not practicing discipline well and they're not meditating and the learned ones they have a slight contemptuous attitude towards the meditators because they say they're just you know they're stupid as potatoes and that's all they can do sit <laughs> sit there out there you know in their forests and you know, meditate. That, personally, I find is a tragedy, uh, which has befallen, you know, particularly Thai Buddhism. I don't discern this so much in uh, Sri Lanka or in Burma. Or in, um, and uh, certainly not in Tibet. So, learning has not always been encouraged where I was, you know. I've always had to find my learning friends, people who were interested in things, and I had to... Um, in fact, I left I left my monasteries in England to go to Thailand to learn, because I realized when I stay there in England, I just don't have time to learn. We're, we were into building monasteries and doing group things, and learning Pali always had to compete with writing to mum and, you know, and darning my socks. And there was just not much encouragement for this sort of thing. And I realized after a few years, <laughs> I need to get out here. <laughs> yeah, I need to go someplace where I have time, where I have encouragement. And it led me to actually go away from England as a monk to Thailand and uh, deinstitutionalize myself. You know, go there with my own visa to another teacher in the, in the study tradition, wear a bright orange robe you know, which is a, a no, absolute no-no, you know, if you're a forest monk, you're wearing a dark Genkanun type jackfruit jack tree dye dyed dark brown road, trademark of the forest tradition. Not one of these slick city, knock your eyes out orange ropes. So, so I was going to the city with one of my nice dark brown robe and my teacher said ah you you can you can stay here i give you much opportunity but um, by the way if you stay here you you better change your robe you know <laughs> so i suddenly turned from a proud dark forest monk into one of these um bright orange robe monks who were in my head doing all the things you know I, as a good forest monk, was not going to do. Yeah. It turns out that um, these were very, very decent and very well-practiced monks, and I had to swallow my pride and realize that some of my perceptions of people I had actually never lived with 
uh, were wildly off the mark. And I could find the conditions to learn Thai and learn Pali there. So learning was not always easy. The Buddha is quite clear. He praises his communities for being Bahosutta, learned, ones who know much, who remember much, who have heard much. People who not just do remembering things, but actually converse with each other. You know, there is a great encouragement for physical solitude. The encouragement is for physical solitude is for part of the day. And then, yeah, and then you meet your friends and then you talk about what you've been doing in your physical solitude. Yeah? You're encouraged to exchange. You're encouraged to challenge each other. You're encouraged to seek counsel. You're encouraged to test your understanding. You're encouraged to inquire from people who are more learned, more experienced, more seasoned than you. Uh, this is given much space. Yeah. There you are. Buddha says, you know, seek solitude. There are these trees. Meditate. Don't chat. Don't hang out. Lest you regret it. Yeah. And then uh, evening comes and the monks gather together and spend the night talking. You know, oh, interesting. Yeah. If you burn the leaf, suddenly that solitude turns out to be a solitude that was part of the day, that was not an eremitical solitude where you just, you know, rolled the rock in front of your cave and, you know, finally closed the chapter on the world. Uh, it's a solitude that is for part of the time. And then you seek to actually deepen your understanding by exchanging, by verifying, by validating, by testing your understanding with others. So, so learning. And remember, learning in the days of the Buddha was listening. No MP3s, no downloads, no PDFs, no books, uh, no online lectures. Learning was listening. The word for disciples is savaka or savika. It's a listener. That's the way you got information, by listening to people. So listening to people you can only do when you actually meet them. You know? So the source for basically handing down and transmission of teaching was congregation. It was meeting and finding ritualized forms in which while you live together, you could be apart and come together and be apart. Yeah. That's what I have learned in the forest tradition, that this is possible to do. That you can organize a day uh, and that day has sort of points where you are together and where you are apart together and apart, and you move in and you move out. And that's powerful. Yeah? That's a way of learning. Even today, this is a way of learning. You learn about yourself through being with others. That's powerful, isn't it? We learn, we relate to others, and in relating to others, we learn about ourselves. There's a relationship between this being and its experience, and there is a relationship between this being and that being. And some parallel, some parallelisms go on between what's happening between this being and that being, and between this being and its own experience. Both are relationships, and both share resemblances. Yeah? If I cannot do that with a genuine person, it is very unlikely that I can do that with me. If this freaks me when I get in touch with myself, then it's likely to freak me when I get in touch with that in you. Yeah, there is a correlate. There is a correlation there.
uh, the psychologists in here will know, you know, we internalize patterns of how we are being related to and relate to ourselves in such a way. That's why meditators sometimes do strange things. When I tell them to carefully attend to their breathing, they um, talk to them in reproachful voices and give orders. Yeah, And when it doesn't work, they pass judgments. You know? And then they come to me and say, Anapanasati doesn't work. I get migraines. Uh, meditation makes me feel horrible. And I kind of gently inquire, what are you doing? And, you know, kind of, how exactly? Yeah, that's fine, that's the Pali word. How exactly are you doing? <laughs> and then it turns out, you know, meditator um, talks to himself in a snarling voice, expects that this works straight away. If it doesn't work straight away, is reproachful and vindictive. Yeah? I would get headaches from this. You know, if I do this several hours a day, that's not what I said, you know. It's just I enact a relational pattern I tacitly apply to my Anapanasati method. You know? And my headache has a lot to do not with Anapanasati, but with the particular type of Anapanasati I uh, engage in. So it's important that I learn, that I learn what's details, discern, figure out, compare. You know? This is necessary. Fourth one, correlate, I think is obvious. Trying to get the detail, there's the learning of number three, trying to get the bigger picture, zooming out is the correlate of number four. And finally, the fifth, you know, what helps me to actually live my truth? What helps me to walk my talk? What helps me to, in the face of that gap between knowing and capacity to live in a realized way, what helps me to practice. Much of our practice seems to be in that scissor between what I can't yet do and yet what I know already too well. How can I foster myself? Rather than holding that this gap speaks against the validity of my knowledge, help that part of me that hasn't realized in its performance yet what it is capable of knowing help that part to deepen the capacity to live by my truth. Yeah. So please consider these differing dimensions and um, ponder. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.